Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. As you likely already know, RA has plenty of writers with plenty of opinions, which is why we started the Critics Roundtable, an exchange podcast in which we sit down with some of the site's contributors to talk about electronic music. RA scribe Angus Finlayson joined us in Berlin earlier this month to discuss three topics. We started with an extended discussion about the online underground and cute, the term that music critic Adam Harper has coined to describe artists like A.G. Cook and Sophie. Harper wrote a piece for us on the subject last month, and along with the podcast we featured from Ben Aqua on the same week, it was just about the most divisive content we've had on the site in recent memory. We then moved on to talk about the idea of anonymity in electronic music, asking ourselves if in this day and age the practice was little more than a marketing ploy. Finally, we discussed the often awkward role that albums play in dance music. Pinch told us recently that he thinks club music simply isn't designed to be consumed in the full-length format, so we figured out where we all stood on the subject. Welcome to another edition of the Critics Roundtable. I'm Ryan Keeling, RA's editor. I'm joined this morning in Berlin by three fellow music writers. Across from me is Angus Finlayson. He's one of RA's most frequent contributors. Angus, it's the end of the summer now. I wanted to ask everybody what their favourite festival was this year. What are you going for? Well, I didn't go to all that many, but probably Sonar. I'd been before and it was kind of more of the same, but I was just really impressed by the volume of like really interesting kind of impressive performances that I saw. Okay, and you're talking about the festival proper rather than all the stuff that goes on around Barcelona, it. Barcelona, yeah, the, the official the official festival. Great, and to his right, we've got Will Lynch, Mario's associate editor. How are you doing, Will? Pretty good. Excellent, and what's your festival pick so far for this year? I got to go to Labyrinth Festival in Japan, which I wanted to do for a long time. Lived up to the hype. It's basically... If you imagine the intro sequence to uh, Jurassic Park, where the helicopter is going over all those lush mountains, if you just took a spot in there and just plopped down, like, you know, Function 1 sound system and a few teepees and, like, several hundred extremely elegant candles, that's basically uh, the vibe. Yeah, the music was exceptional. Peter Van Hosen was my favorite, probably. Finished with a Simple Minds track. That was a real shocker. Yeah, it's great stuff. And uh, we also have Jordan Rothline, RA's music tech editor. How are you doing today, Jordan? Doing well. Excellent. What are you uh, highlighting for us? My favorite festival this year, I would say far and away, was Nachtigital. Right around the corner, I, I didn't go as far as Barcelona or Japan to find this thing. But it's, uh, it's a fantastic festival. It has sort of its own music policy. It's quite small. I think it's around 1,000 people, right, Will? 
Yeah, maybe two. Yeah. Everybody camps. The music basically never stops. The vibe is through the roof the entire time. I go to a lot of festivals for work and often they'll be very good, but I'll, I'll still say to myself, okay, that was great. Like I'm happy to not go to this one again, but this one I will definitely go to next year without a doubt, but I'll need to have a much more professional campsite because the people who go to this festival are like the most professional campers that I've ever encountered. Uh, all the campsites were immaculate and ours was sort of a dump. We were actually ridiculed by our neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. So as usual, we're going to be discussing three topics today. The first of which feels like it's become pretty much the most divisive thing to hit electronic music in some time. Of course, I'm talking about PC music and Sophie and the whole cute thing. We'll then be moving on to discuss the idea of anonymity in dance music. It was connected to a recent feature we ran with Shifted. And then uh, in light of recent comments Pinch made to us, we'll finish up by discussing the sometimes awkward role that the album format plays in dance music. So to begin with, I wanted to ask each of the guys a simple question. On a very basic level, do you enjoy the work of PC Music and Sophie? I want one word answers for this. Angus. It is literally impossible to give a one word answer to that question. <laughs> well, I'll, give, well, I'll give a, a, a four word answer, which is that I'm on the fence. Will? Yes. Jordan? Yes, with like 10 asterisks <laughs> after it. Okay, so what about you, Ryan? I'm going to go for yes. And I want to summarise what we're talking about here. So the journalist Adam Harper, who wrote Peace for RA that we're going to be discussing a little later, he's recently been throwing around this term cute to describe the sound of A.G. Cook's PC Music label and Sophie. He's an artist who's closely linked to Cook. So the star's kind of a hyper-glossy mash of club tunes and pop tracks. Uh, it takes his cues from all over the place, but it's particularly influenced by things like J-pop, uh, 90s hardcore, trance, footwork and electro house the sounds they use are full throttled extremely sugary kind of camp and yeah controversial so there's been a lot of coverage on this music from npr to radio one to vice guardian and of course ra printed a few notable pieces on the star which includes a handful of positive reviews i would say overall there was a piece by Adam Harper on what he called the online underground and a podcast by ben aqua who runs an internet label called feelings Personally, I don't remember there being as strong a reaction to a style of music or a movement, certainly not in my memory of working in dance music. Would you kind of all agree with that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think so. Will, as I looked at you, do you understand the backlash? Do you get where the naysayers are coming from? Yeah, because I think there's, a, to some extent intentionally, the music elicits, you know, a strong reaction often or in many cases one of kind of revulsion or you know disgust or there's you know right away even for people that end up liking it i think the first feeling is just like jesus christ you know you know so i heard it and that was sort of my reaction that's where i came around to it and then when i was showing it to people i would always like set the stage like explain the whole thing um how it's divisive and just kind of the basic background of uh, PC music, and I guess specifically I'm talking about Hey Cutie. Anyway, and the way it went would always remind me of like there's this uh, documentary called uh, Kill Your Idols about like No Wave, 
in it, like Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth is talking about how when he showed his friends No Wave, like nine times out of 10, he'd be all excited about it and show it to them. And then they would just be like, whoa, like this is just bad music, man. Like, you know, like they'd be on board with punk or whatever else you show them. But then you get to that and it's like, you know, the guys just, just no, like this, there's nothing there. This is just crap, you know? And it was the exact same thing where like there's this portion of people that sort of like can be on board with it. And then this other group that just, they're really far from being able to, you know, see anything good about it at all. Um, and I think even to the people that like it, when you hear the music, um, it's not surprising that, mm. that, that that would be the reaction. In just kind of uh, discussing this among your friend group, have you been finding that people who maybe initially were kind of appalled by this music have been coming around to it? Yeah, I'd say it's the exception rather than the rule, but for sure. And actually, I think the people that kind of remain really opposed to it are also the most entrenched in, you know, musically in some way, like the lifelong music nerds or they're very committed to what they like um, or they're DJs or something like that. And the people that are more likely to be like, like, yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of funny. And then sooner or later, like they just outright like it. Um, those people tend to be the more like lay people, I guess, or just, mm. um, you know, like I, th I think something about it is uh, it's like more perplexing to, to people that, listen to music all the time, think about music all the time that, that maybe have more, you know, staunch positions mm. on this stuff. Like they're more likely to, in my experience anyway, to, to dislike it. I mean, do you get the impression that people are arriving at this opinion, not through an engagement through the music, but just as like an immediate reaction to it? Yeah. I mean, I think what's really interesting about it is like, so take like the way people, you know, the response to something like uh, QTM, people are reacting to it as if, it was making some kind of overt political statement with, with which they disagree, you know, that there is nothing in the music or that is actually offensive. You know, it's like, it's, it's not like it has a racist sleeve design or something like that, but, but pe people are reacting to it as, as if there's just something patently vulgar about it. When in reality, it's just an aesthetic that doesn't do it for them. But it's amazing to me that, that it actually can elicit that strong of a reaction without any, you know, social political commentary whatsoever. I think there is, in some cases, something that's a little bit vulgar about this music and that I think is is supposed to be a little vulgar about this music. And sometimes I think that that can be engaging. And then sometimes, like, I've had a really hard time with it. With Hannah Diamond, for example, uh, you have this singer whose voice is sort of pretty bad. Yep. There are some pitch issues if I was going to be talking like a vocal producer. She's wearing these kind of awful like North Face puffy jackets. Her sort of whole style seems to be emphasizing, I don't know, some sort of um, like actual style deficit. It's a rejection of good taste. Yeah, it's, it's sort of a rejection of good taste, but it also feels like there's something mean about it in a way, at least sort of the first time I what, came. sort of amplifying the idea of yeah yeah it. it's it's sort of like playing off of people who and, and maybe i'm being offensive by saying this or something but it's it's amplifying facets of style that maybe people who who didn't who weren't as fashionable as the people behind pc music or something wouldn't sort of have the wherewithal to like know that this was a no-no um i don't know sometimes it, it does feel like it's making fun a little bit yeah i mean i think that this is kind of central to your response to it the extent to which you interpret it as kind of arch 
and satirical and maybe very deliberately provocative as opposed to essentially very genuine and done out of a love for the things that it references. Mm. But obviously beyond the point, it's just impossible to really discern these people's intentions, you know, mm. and not only because PC music themselves like to kind of play with identity in a way that, you know, they're not really out there in the public eye. They don't do many interviews and things, but just with any musician, really, it's hard to ultimately to say what their intention is. There's kind of a guessing game involved there. Like, is it arch? Is it obnoxious? Or is it really done out of love? In terms of the assumptions, I think one of the most troubling reactions for me to this style of music was this idea that there's an absolute level of impossibility that people can't enjoy these styles of music. I think one of the most prominent RA commenters said something like, you know, there's basically no way that this music is being listened to under the guise of anything but a fashion choice, which I just found like mind blowing, you know, as somebody who's kind of come up through some of the styles of music that they're referencing, like things like, you know, mid 2000s electro house and like trance synthesis and like hardcore and these types of things like, you know, I so often see them as a synthesis of like so many great styles. And I mean, yes, they're garish, but like this idea that there's no way that people can enjoy this music is kind of mind-blowing to me. Yeah, that reminds me of um, Clive Martin thing on Vice where he's sort of, my favorite part of his piece on all this is the beginning where he says, Truman Capote said of Jack Kerouac, like that's not writing, it's typing. And, you know, Lemmy thought hip hop wasn't music. And like, there's this just chain of like the last generation, no matter how visionary and talented they were thinks the new one is is just complete mm. shit anyway i think when you've got people that are like you know truly genuinely obsessed with music it's their main thing they they have a deep deep appreciation for music and then something comes along and they say like it's it's not it's not possible that someone actually likes this or, or the people that claim to like it are either lying or you know it's a, i don't know there, there's just something like um kind of extraordinary about that it's like you know you've been open-minded your your whole life you know and, um, something comes along and, and you can't stretch your imagination to to someone else's experience you know i mean do we think that lots of this has to do with the particular types of people that this is butting up against like if you take what are some of like the uh, sort of intrinsic like like very core values of house and techno do you think that people from this side of the scene are really seeing it as like a challenge to their turf you know is this such like a, a difference in what they hold true or a perception of that yeah i mean it's definitely an, an assault on a certain value system and i think adam touches on this in the article when he says that you know i mean I've, i can't remember the exact quote but that you know with the kind of long-standing vogue in all different parts of the kind of musical underground quote unquote for kind of rough sounds for things that sound lo-fi in a way that technology from perhaps the 80s and the 90s makes things sound lo-fi that whole aesthetic is to an extent about rejection of the tools that we have now and this music is about really embracing that and it's a different kind of lo-fi yeah i mean it's that it's this word authenticity as well if you hold really in the highest regard like this idea of authenticity and keeping it real which are kind of values that have always been like connected to house and techno and this music would seem to like fly so wholly in the face of keeping it real because for one you just don't know if these people are even being serious about their art it butts up against this idea of you know what what does underground music sound like on the one end and then on the other end it butts up on this idea of which is maybe something that's sort of an ideal in, in techno or in clubland for this very high definition sound that's also quite rich, you know, like 
this is where you get into things like function one or like Marzion speakers or something like this, like that there's this purity to sound. The music that we're talking about here today kind of doesn't fit in with either of these ideals. Like if it's not going to be like completely high definition, full spectrum, like gorgeous sound design, then it better well be kind of gritty, you know, master to tape, you know, distorted sound, not this kind of digital sheen or something. But I also think like just sort of before we forget to do this, like I do feel, you know, when people talk about this music, um, the whole concept and these theoretical ideas kind of dominate the conversation. But I do think it's worth emphasizing that like many of us feel that this is actually like really good music. Like mm. I like listening to this stuff. I don't know. I think the other elements of it are, are kind of so diverting that that often gets sort of lost in the mix or something. But I mean, the production style, of especially like Lemonade, but, you know, it is bold, you know, kind of novel and, um, and, and reflects an inspired artist. It's, yeah. it's not like the whole thing is, is a pop art joke. There is, you know, the, the music itself is very strong. I think that's exactly why when I did kind of respond to the online underground piece, I was very keen to talk in specifics about what these tracks were doing and that I felt very strongly that I was hearing things done in a way that I'd simply never heard before. Like just in terms of like timbre and rhythm, like, you know, these are, these are things that are just, that sound entirely fresh to me and they may be kind of constructed from familiar elements, but put together in such a way that, yeah, I've, I've never really heard before. I mean, I was going to say that I think that sometimes the presentation is so brash, so over the top that you kind of forget that there's there actually is like some music that's underneath all of that, like especially with um, A.G. Cook's stuff. I really get the sense that the, the chord progressions are pretty well considered. There's kind of a, a form to everything. There's, there's an arc to the composition. I mean, this doesn't sound like music that's just made as a complete joke. This sounds like music that's relatively serious music just being presented through this totally weird day glow mm. pop style. Like serious music can have a strong sense of humor. Or it, serious music doesn't have to take itself seriously, if you know if that makes sense. Yeah, you find humor yeah. in classical music all the time, yeah. and it's just different. But yeah, I mean, and also this idea that it's just, like when the Lemonade review was up, something I heard a bit of was like, oh, so you guys just like review like EDM now or something, or just review pop now. And, um, and then I was with Carlos um, Hawthorne, who also writes for RA, and we were in a cab that night and heard a lot of EDM and pop on the radio. And he was like, yeah, this, this sounds absolutely nothing like Lemonade. And um, you know, just because just it has that little part with the chords, you know, that sort of pisses people off. In the end, it actually is not commercially, you know, friendly music. It's not going to be on, you know, it just doesn't knock, it's not going to play the same role as EDM or, or regular pop. It doesn't sound like that. Mm, for sure. I think I'll probably speak for a lot of people when I say I first came to this music through Sophie. I caught him, I think, three times this year playing in the context of a festival. I really got on a tip with this music when I saw him on a mixed bill. I think taking in this music, not in the context of one of these like supposedly very sort of like hipster or fashion orientated parties, but on a mixed bill where it, the music was going to be presented among many other performances, which gave like an incredible like compare and contrast. But just on a, I think synthesis for me is really what's like driving this. And I think um, as an artist, Sophie's like, he's talked about um, using pure sine waves and stuff and the idea of like, sound design of sculpture but he he stood out 
so far and away among everything else. I, I think I caught him at South by and Field Day, but the just the way that these frequencies are being manipulated, you know, just the the way he was playing with texture and stuff, and then to just the kind of reversal of drop culture. You know, things would drop in and out, and like things would be kind of messed with in ways that were like wholly original. Was everybody else kind of like in the main feeling Sophie's stuff? Is that kind of how you guys also came to this music? Yeah, I, I was always really, I guess, I was attracted to the to the level of production that was going on there. I mean, this is obviously a guy who knows what he's doing with sound, is also very flexible or able to be very flexible with sound, very dexterous with sound. Sometimes I would have a feeling, and I think Lemonade sometimes gave me this feeling where I was like, okay, you're you're really good with sound and like, this is what you're going to do with it. Okay. Like, but there is a, a a level of production. It's just, this guy isn't working with a modular synthesizer. He's working obviously with something else. Adam Harper said recently, I think he wrote a column specifically about cute. I think he's like, you know, this is the, the sort of term that he's coining, but he said that this music could see, be seen as like a, an exploration of the uh, modern mindset. Do we feel as though we're kind of seeing the first fully realized like creative fruits of artists who don't know life without the internet in a way? Like A.G. Cook, I know, was born in 1990. He said he was like designing and building websites by the age of 10. Like, is this a product of that generation in a way? And is that kind of, is the reaction to it sort of symptomatic of a generation gap? I would be hesitant. I think that's too neat, essentially, in analysis, because I know lots of people who were born in 1990 or maybe even 1992 who wouldn't share A.G. Cook's kind of values whatsoever. And, you know, these things are always complex and many shaded. And equally, I think that there's been music that has come from, if you like, digital natives around for sort of most of the last 10 years, really, where, you know, it's been music that has kind of reflected this new value system that the, the internet has kind of brought about. So, you know, maybe acute aesthetic is in large part to do with the internet but I would be hesitant to say that like this is the way that that whole generation sort of as a monolithic entity thinks and that it's only gonna be more so if you see what I mean yeah but I mean I guess um they couldn't have existed without the internet but... sure yeah I'm sure that's true but I think that's equally true of for example outside a house I think couldn't have existed without the internet but at the same time has an almost diametrically opposed kind of a worldview and a set of values yeah, I mean, coming back to this idea of the the reaction to it, I think uh, one of the most striking things for me as someone who's come up through kind of, you know, traditional like house and techno and club styles and kind of DJ culture is the way that there's not even really a rejection of these like modes of presentation. Like these guys just don't really know any differently. Like I get the impression that they're not studying the art of DJing, vinyl, beat matching, these kinds of things, and then saying, no, actually screw you. We're gonna like present ourselves like through a laptop program, through like DJ software. It feels more like, you know, they have all this amazing music. They're not necessarily skilled in DJing and they just wanna get it out to their friend circle. These crews as well, it always seems to be interconnected people, you know, people who went to school together, you know, small social networks. And these seem to be the people who like forming uh, around these music. But um, I've seen some performances, like particularly in terms of DJing that like maybe even five years ago with, with my attitude coming up through these stars of music, I would have just been absolutely dismissive of. 
you know, people using like free virtual DJ software, kind of like semi kind of train wrecking through mixes, like not using headphones, like putting things together that have no right to sit together. But, you know, I think ultimately the question that needs to be asked is like, what do the audience require from them? Like I've never seen someone grimace at like a bad mix at one of these parties. If the audience is like open and receptive and they're happy to like consume the music in this way, like is that kind of a problem? I keep asking myself and like no would be my response. Well, I guess it's not, you know, uh, on the one hand, I'm hesitant to just dive right into this analogy, but it's like people saying that sex pistols can't play their instruments and like their audience doesn't seem to care. You know, it's like if you want to stand on the sidelines and make noise about it, fine, but they're happy, their fans are happy you know, sort of, um, like they, they're achieving what they're setting out to do with that free, you know, DJ software ripped copies of Ableton or, you know, whatever it is. But yeah, also um, something I wanted to fit in for me, like the controversy of the whole thing preceded my actual hearing any of this stuff. It was uh, with Lemonade and um, there was like a big brouhaha. I was in Ibiza at the time and um, I finally listened to Lemonade. I was expecting something like really insipid from the way people were talking about it. And, um, and I was like, well, you know, this sort of got a cool, it's got its own style. Like, you know, I sort of found a a few things to like about it right away. And then either that night or the night before I'd been at DC 10 is like hearing what, yeah, well, I won't name any names, but hearing people play at DC 10. I mean, a lot of that was, there were some good things, but a lot of it was just dross, you know, just, just bleak, uninspired music with, with no heart or with like at, at no point was somebody really excited to, to put this record out, to play this record, you know, anyway, I guess it's like, I would just take something, you know, as, as wacky and obnoxious as it might be. Like I would always take that over, you know, something as uh, sort of just totally dry mm. and derivative as, as, you know, um, like cookie cutter tech house. Yeah. I mean, you hear this argument being made, I can definitely see where it's coming from. But as with the argument that, which also you see being made, well, it's provocative. It got you talking about it. Surely that is a value in itself. I'm sort of wary of like the slippage between saying, well, you know, yeah, it got a response. Well, it's interesting. And saying that it's good or that it's worthwhile. I mean, I'm not saying that PC music is not worthwhile, but I just think that this is a kind of a rhetorical device used to justify things without actually discussing the, the innate qualities of like mm. the music or. Yeah. I mean, this is something that, that comes up in the Adam Harper piece a bit. I mean, there's this question about whether you'd have, you'd rather have good music or whether you'd rather have interesting music. And this was something I really struggled with in, in the piece itself when, when I was reading it and that I just wasn't sure if I agreed with it, I wasn't sure how I felt about it. I mean, Adam comes out on the side of interesting music and he sort of downplays the qualitative drawbacks, I think is the, the phrase that he uses, of this music. Like some of it's like really out there. Some some of it like kind of doesn't know when to stop. Some of it's very kind of caught up in, in the idea of what it is, but isn't really like interested in pleasure. And I don't know. I mean, I think you want good music that's also interesting. I mean, Will, it sounds like what you were talking about is just music that's neither good nor interesting. Right. Mm. I think this is the question that I have with this music is, is like, yes, I like interesting music. I like music that makes me think, but if it's not good, if, if I can't get into it, like if those qualitative drawbacks are like pretty massive, yeah. like, can I listen to it? Is it even worth it? Well, yeah, I mean, I was thinking like with the Ben Aqua mix, as Ryan said in his post, there are passages of it where I'm sort of like, okay, it's getting a bit much for me right now, but... 
to the same extent that I feel that way listening to that mix, I probably, you know, to the same amount feel bored, you know, listening to like a house or techno mix, even one that I like, like there will be moments there where I sort of like am no longer paying attention. Like it sort of lost me for a minute and then gets me back a few minutes later. And I just sort of forget about it, gloss it over in my memory. Um, I guess with this music, there's just the uh, forming an opinion on it. It's kind of like a, a more immediate process. You know, if you have a house and techno mix on in the background, there's like, I feel like there's additional steps to take to make a decision on whether like you value that piece of music. Mm -hmm. But with this, it's just like the immediacy is so there. And that's kind of like, it, again, this is one of the qualities I really enjoy about it. It's such this mixed bag thing, you know, and yeah, exactly as I said in the post, like I felt like Ben would go two or three tracks and I was just completely there with him. He would drop into something and I just wanted to scream. But, you know, the fact that he was provoking these reactions in the first place was like, you know, was certainly something in itself. Well, it's also like if you're doing something really ballsy, it's not going to work the whole time. You know, like if, if you're actually kind of like taking risks and doing weird stuff, sometimes it's just going to suck. Like that's that's the cost of, yeah. of, you know, kind of putting yourself out there, going on a limb. But he sort of pleasingly said to me as well that he considered who the audience was for this mix and he decided to go even more extreme and even more colorful in like the, the tunes that he selected like yeah one thing too that i wanted to say about the audience of that mix is kind of interesting to me basically like the thing i was into before dance music was sort of like indie rock and punk and hardcore and stuff and it's interesting to me how much more tolerance that scene has for its equivalent of this kind of thing like when i was in high school bands like uh, the locust it would be pretty obvious that it's like you can't tell how much of it's a joke it's very obnoxious sounding and people sort of took that for what it was and would still like them. And I was thinking about like Sun or like Sun O as they're sometimes called. Like, is it a metal band? Is it a parody of a metal band? It's sort of like, who cares? They have a gigantic fan base. You know, it's everybody likes them despite this sort of, you know, in your face, like we're fucking with you kind of thing. And anyway, I just find it interesting that there's absolutely no room for that at all in, in, in this culture. And in fact, people even, just the simple fact that it was like a, a conceptual art thing, for many people was reason enough to dismiss it. Yeah, I was just going to say that there seems to be a very like inbuilt skepticism among people who enjoy house and techno that if something is somehow connected to another discipline, like the idea that music would be connected to fashion or art, for example, is just completely off limits. There was reaction recently to the, do you see the press shots that Future Brown put out when they signed to Warp as a group of artists that all been like, or had, had very close connections to the Hood by Air label and um, they were all kind of like decked out in this and the reaction to like just their fashion choices or their clothes choices alone just like it seemed as though people were outright dismissing like any musical statement that they were going to make in addition to that i think that there's this idea that maybe we can i don't know that that maybe yes music can make you think there can be something embedded in that but this is music that's meant to have kind of a, a visceral reaction and that you're meant to kind of like or not like. I mean, if you're going to a record store and you, you know, you grab a ton of records and you sit there and you listen to them, you have a like pile and a don't like pile. You probably don't have like a, well, this is interesting and this makes me think and like a, oh, this is, you know, conceptually garbage sort of pile. And I think that, um, you know, people will go on hard wax or something and that's like music criticism for them, you know, when, when they're just recommending things they want to sell you. Mm -hmm. And I think there's this, maybe some of the, the backlash that we're getting to this music is like, 
okay, so if I don't like it, if I don't think it's good, am I like not allowed to do that? Like, does the concept supersede the fact that I don't like it and then I have to like it regardless? But I also think though, this, we're making it sound a bit more cerebral than it actually is. Like appreciating this sort of design side or the, you know, concept side of something like PC music isn't as chin strokey as people sort of make it out to be. Like, you know, my experience of liking it is just that I like it. Mm-hmm. Like I experience pleasure. You know? Yeah. Um, like it's, it, I don't know. I, th- I think the sort of naysayers of that side, like make it out to be this um, obnoxiously lofty, like, like you know, academic intellectual kind of but, art school pranksters. Like, right. But that's not what it is. It's, it's, it's that like, it's cool. And, and I, yeah, I just like it like the same way I like anything, you know? Yeah. But yeah. I guess maybe the, the issue there, and this is something that I've struggled with a fair amount with this music is like, okay, so you can, you can like it in a just very visceral way. You can like it in a very chin strokey way. You can not like it in a very chin strokey way. But then if you don't like it because you just don't like it, are you like a bad person or something? (laughs) You know, or you don't get it, which is, I I think uh, the get it, don't get it's a straw man argument set up by the naysayers. That's sort of like, as if the whole thing is a challenge to get it. And if you don't get it, it, you're, you're just a silly fucking, you know, Philistine and, and, too bad for you but i don't think anybody actually feels that way yeah like, i mean connected to this idea that it's somehow cerebral like i've read an interview with ag cook where he said that pretty much his biggest like aesthetic inspiration is tim and eric like <laughs> do you i don't yeah, know tim and eric. you know this idea that they have this like all-encompassing world that they inhibit so everything from the way it sounds to the kind of tone to the style of the humor just like exists within this world and I think for him, like, I, I think he mentioned Ryan Tricartan as well, whose like work is absolutely instantly recognizable as their own and um, extremity as well. I mean, like some of the shit on Tim and Eric is like deeply, deeply disturbing. And like some of the places that they go with their, with their comedy is like really troubling, but you get the sense that like one of their sort of defining and prevailing sort of motivations is extremity it is going there it is about pushing buttons and i don't think that like for them and i don't think for alex ag cook i don't think they're necessarily doing it because of consideration of like an audience response kind of picking up on uh, what you were saying jordan about this idea that there are different grades of response it's not simply i like this or i dislike it but that in erecting a kind of a critical scaffolding around the music then people feel that they are somehow not allowed to dislike it unless they can demolish the scaffolding as well. But I think it's it, it's important to kind of consider in this context Adam's background. So I don't know if you guys have read his book that was published a couple of years ago called Infinite Music. You know, he's a musicologist by trade. He's an academic. And this book is a, it's an accessible but sort of quite abstract, quite theoretical kind of manifesto basically about the ways in which music in the 21st century can be or should be new and it's kind of a riposte to journalists like Simon Reynolds who are saying that you know pop music these days is essentially retro and there's nothing new going on but I think when you read his pieces you kind of see this this critical lens at work and he what he's really interested in is is newness is this kind of shock of the new kind of strange vivid new things and I get the feeling that with him that sensation is kind of takes precedence over almost any other consideration. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to talk about as well that the, but the sort of primary way that this music's consumed, you know, 
what we're talking about is late night trawls through SoundCloud, you know, clicking on things because the image looks cool, like downloading a piece of music and maybe sitting with that piece of music for a number of days and then kind of moving on to the next thing. And Adam does, you know, maybe he didn't do quite enough, good enough job of sort of emphasizing this, but I think he said something along the lines of, if I see a piece of music in a record store, mm-hmm. it's almost dead to me. I feel as though something's got in between me and the music and, yeah, the, the, and the, the trail has gone, yeah. gone cold, uh, you know, and this idea of wading through SoundCloud, you know, you could say demos. I mean, there's, there's a way that you could kind of describe what we're discussing here. This absolutely isn't for everyone. You know, I don't know how much time you guys would personally spend like wading through SoundCloud clips and and the like. But, you know, what he's discussing here is something quite specific. And as Angus was saying, is born out of a pretty specific like state of mind. Yeah, I mean, for me, when I was reading that part, I was thinking like uh, this term generation gap came up a few times in that. I think for me, that's where the generation gap lies is uh, when it comes down to it the internet is not something I feel romantic about. You know, in my day-to-day life, I intentionally limit my like screen time, so to speak. Like I leave my laptop in the office and I go home. You know, I, I don't like living on the internet. Like I, I, I try to be on the internet as little as I can basically. And that's part of why I like record stores and I like reading print magazines and things like that. Um, I, to some level, have some kind of almost visceral feeling of, of like an allergy to, to spending too much time looking at a screen being on the internet. And then when I'm reading that piece and, and sort of this idea of an entire musical movement being in some way like a celebration of, of um, internet existence, you know, I have a feeling in my gut of just like, that's kind of disgusting to me or like, you know, it's not, not that it's wrong or, you know, it's a, it's a completely subjective thing, but it's like, I don't like that at all. Like that's, that's coming from a, an experience very much, you know, it's not my own. It's probably important at this point to kind of differentiate between the two things that we're discussing. So on the one hand, we've got this idea of cute PC music, Sophie, all of these guys who are kind of producing this hyperglossy style of music. And then Adam's piece, which was centered on what he called the online underground, which essentially he's describing as a mode of distribution that goes away from the older music industry models of music distribution puts the, ha- uh, the power in the hands of the artists. Like, you know, again, this idea of nothing getting in between the, the audience and the artist. And in doing so, he made the connection to punk. So to quote the piece, he drew the parallels of punk in the self-releasing revolution, the provocative aesthetics, aesthetics and the rise of a new generation. My question to you guys is if you take what he's talking about to its logical conclusion, can you see a situation where in five years time, artists just are using a SoundCloud and a Bandcamp and they're packaging their music as you probably would with a regular label and just either selling direct to their fans or just giving it away for free? And is that something you're seeing in increasing numbers presently? I think the thing about popular culture in general is that things persist well beyond the point where, according to the history books, they've stopped. So, you know, punk happened. And as far as the kind of canonical understanding of popular culture goes, that was kind of year zero for pretty much everything that came after it. But obviously in reality, all of these like industry dinosaurs from like the prog era and so on and so forth persisted into the eighties, like in various ways. So I think, you know, to say that maybe this presents a a new model, which 
might eventually be ubiquitous isn't to say that these older models, for instance, record shops and kind of DJ culture as we understand it in dance music will within five years just disappear. You know, I think they will persist at least for as long as the people who came of age in like the 80s and the 90s mm. are still wanting to buy music because those people are never going to kind of give up on that idea completely. Well, I think it's striking to me as well at the moment that the types of artists we're discussing, it's not necessarily like they're rejecting an older model. I mean, they're sort of pursuing this model that works for them. But if, for example, a label like XL Recordings comes in, then they're going to sign with them. If like someone approaches them, for management, they're going to go with that. I mean, I approached Ben Aqua about RA podcast and rather than say, no, what I'm doing is separate to you. He was very you know, appreciative of the exposure. It feels at the moment that maybe we're in something of a middle ground, you know, where these guys want to pursue their own agenda and they want to do things on their own terms. But if a label, particularly a big label comes knocking, like there is still this idea of legitimacy connected to that that would be inherently attracted to them like i don't think i don't see this like shift in thinking as being like so radical whereby they would just totally reject it wholesale yeah i mean i think partly that's that's definitely where the comparison falls down maybe in that punk was very much a middle finger to what came before it and was really styled as that almost in a kind of a a way that became quite kind of empty and theatrical and you know like i think a lot of the initial moment of punk was essentially like a kind of a theatrical statement more than anything else and it didn't last that long but it was really the things that came after it that were interesting but you know with this music someone like Ben Aqua I mean I wouldn't like to put words into his mouth but I don't get the sense that his entire project is motivated by a need to kind of like punch the music industry in the gut like I don't think that's his his motivation he's just like doing his thing and that happens to differ in some ways from like traditional models of doing things. I mean the reaction as well that or the suggestion that this music is merely the product of you know someone hitting on a sample and then using some cracked you know sequence of software to put it together in a matter of minutes like that necessarily you know people are rejecting it just on those um, terms or the assumptions of those terms like for you guys personally if you knew that something had been hastily cobbled together in a number of hours or minutes, would that inhibit your enjoyment of the music? Not at all. And no. I think to me, this is one of the things that is very laudable about this kind of phenomenon that Adam's talking about, even if you don't like the music, is the ways in which it kind of inadvertently attacks these sort of really outmoded values that maybe certain aspects of the scene have about, are oh, you like, didn't work hard enough in that, like there's no craft, like this idea that craft is important even though, you know, in pop music, it's been demonstrated for decades that craft isn't important at all. You know, if you like the result, regardless of how it was made, how easily it was made, that's fine. You like it, it's good. Actually, I was speaking to someone even a couple of days ago who told me that they'd um, made a track in three hours, but then added on, don't tell anyone that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of great stuff has been made in very, very little time. It doesn't take very long to come up with a good idea. So um, what do we think about the potential longevity of this particular aesthetic well i still have cutie stuck in my head so i don't know <laughs> yeah i mean again two different things the pc music thing certain aspects of it and certain artists probably have a long career ahead of them sophie being one of them partly because as i think we touched on earlier he actually embodies these ideas of like craft and like pop smithery 
in a way that maybe other parts of PC music are a bit more like angular and difficult to digest in sort of traditional ways. But um, the kind of world that Adam's talking about, I mean, as you said, Ryan, he's not really talking about an aesthetic so much as a means of distribution and a way of doing things. And I think the nature of that model is that the turnover is fast, but that there's maybe an underlying continuity in the people who are doing it and the, the values. Mm. So, you know, I, I'm certain that this kind of way of doing things is going to be around for a long time, but as to what form the music will take, there's really no, no telling. I mean, do we buy into the idea that this maybe changes the role of a music journalist? You know, he did present this idea that, you know, rather than us being faced with uh, the stream of label releases and press releases and these kinds of things, this idea that the modern music journalists would go out into the worlds of SoundCloud and track down music and then... I mean, when he said that, you know, some line about like cranking the meat grinder or, uh, you know, the publicity circuit and all that stuff, I thought like, that sounds great. You know, it's like, I would love to just be free of all that stuff and, and just, uh, you know, like this it, right now, it's like I, I trawl record stores for things to review or whatever, but um, yeah, um, trawling SoundCloud without, I don't know, this sort of uh built-in idea of like yeah but here are the things you're supposed to write about you know like that sounds killer you know I, I, I would love that world of music journalism that was a part of the piece that made me really angry when i first read it because i said like what is he talking about i mean isn't this what music journalists are supposed to be doing anyway <laughs> and upon reflection i realized that he was kind of right about it i mean so much of our jobs is going through the three thousand emails we've gotten overnight and figuring out what's actually worthwhile that that's in there you know what if instead of trawling my email account for like a couple of promos that are actually of decent music and not just sort of something that accompanies a press release like what if i could just go on the internet and see what's actually out there Okay, so there's a recent feature with Shifted, which got us thinking about issues of identity and uh, anonymous producers. So Shifted, who's a techno artist now, uh, used a new name when he was moving away from producing drum and bass as comics. Basically, he didn't want any preconceptions about what he did. Often, though, producers hiding behind pseudonyms and obscuring identities is seen as a marketing ploy. Is it a marketing ploy, Will? I think that would be the exception rather than the rule. I think there are certainly cases where it's like a sort of weird attempt at creating mystique in everything. But I guess part of why the topic is interesting to me is because I think from the audience perspective, um, you often get a bit of an eye roll when someone is like an anonymous artist. But I think as time goes on, there are more and more pragmatic reasons to do this. And um, first of all, I want to say um, a good example is I was recently writing a review of something on Sued Records, capital S-U-E-D, and um, I was almost going to 
on my way to writing that these are anonymous producers. They, they're just, they go by the names like SVN, SW, XI, th- these sort of super nondescript acronyms. But then it's like, well, I don't, that term anonymous would kind of make it sound like they're making a big thing out of it when really it's just, you don't know their real name and there are no press photos. It's like, I, I'm not, sh- I feel like it would, it would be too dramatic to say like anonymous, you know, they actually have just chosen not to put any personal information online. Like, I, I don't think that's like a, um, that doesn't merit this, this kind of term anonymous anyway. And I think like with Discogs, just with Google in general, um, there's this thing now where people, I think it's quite reasonable to just not want, you know, every aspect of, of your true identity to be associated with um, the music you make, which might just be, you know, kind of like a project on the side, or you might not want it to dominate your personage or whatever. Um, it might be like professional reasons or something. That's um, yeah. something that's come up recently. Right. Also, I guess kind of like a side point about it is um, no one that we're talking about is anonymous. Like, like if they were anonymous, that would mean that there is no name associated with them. And like, you wouldn't know it was the same guy that did all these records. It's, it's actually just, they, they are closely tailoring their, their artist identity and often limiting it to barely any details. But like, I guess anonymous would be a, a white label record where you have, no one is even putting a fake name on it, you know, but it's not anonymous to use a made up name and, and conceal what your regular name is, you know? Do we get the sense that the kind of record buying public are growing increasingly weary with this, like, you know, this style of presentation? I think there's certainly a cynicism about it now. And I I think a big part of this is, may have been burial. I think people have observed the way in which for him, anonymity, although really his name was on the internet, has been on the internet since like 2006. But somehow a lot of people miss this and he was perceived as being anonymous. And the, I mean, the feature with The Wire that he did like a few years back, that's just been out there. This, sure, yeah. And, I mean, and around the time of his Mercury nomination, because there was a, a really inept campaign by The Sun to unmask him. So he just posted a picture and his name online and said, this is me, but I just don't really want attention. So I don't think he, he is at all doing this cynically or was in any way trying to orchestrate the kind of mystique that's grown up around him, but definitely people have observed the way in which his success is partly tied into how much he withholds from his fan base. And there's been kind of a wave of people trying to ape that in a much more cynical way. So I think in that particular world, it's definitely something that now I approach with an enormous degree of caution, but certainly something like Sued, the label that Will was talking about, it's just coming from a very different place culturally the kind of reference points for the ways in which those artists are anonymous or whatever you want to call them are very different. Mm. I mean, do you feel as though you can kind of take the temperature of that almost immediately? I mean, in in sort of engaging with it, with the music or the way it's presented, do you think you can put them in one of two categories? Well, I mean, sure. If it's like a, if it's like a, a sub burial future garage record where it's press release makes a big deal out of the fact that it's anonymous then obviously I'm going to be instantly cynical. But, you know, of course you can't, you can't make massive assumptions in every case. It's often difficult to say. Hmm. I'm going to quote you at this point. This was a um, record you reviewed a couple of years ago. It was an unknown artist, but the label was, was it Champion Sound? Champion Sound. Yeah, you described the release as a uh, disingenuous shorthand for authenticity, a cynical strategy. 
Yeah, I mean, you say it was an unknown artist. It's a hairline distinction, but it wasn't. It was an artist called Unknown. And this is really what I'm talking about. This is like taking the language of anonymity and using it for the opposite <laughs> purpose, which is essentially to promote yourself. So this kind of thing really annoys me because it's, it's taking something that in a way gets to, gets to kind of the foundation of dance music's values and the anonymity is about subsuming yourselfhood into kind of a larger collective effort into a community and it takes the 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 kind of language of that and uses it to promote yourself to kind of mm. push yourself so you know this kind of thing i think is quite cynical i don't know if it's unfair of me to zero on a particular act but there was a press release i received within the last few months that just like really got my back up in terms of what you're talking about so this is band mysteries the press release reads with no faces no names and no real background story mysteries elusive nature uh, sorry mysteries elusive nature debut track drew questions as to just who these three people are a few months ago the felt label received an anonymous demo accompanied by a photo of three figures faces covered like some sort of futuristic druids there's a sense that the band would prefer to keep your focus on the music and not who they are where they come from or what you might perceive them to be on hearing a single note if you need glorious mugshots and preamble to catch your intrigue then this is not for you I need to add that this was accompanied by a press photo that directly ripped off the um, early underground New York video artist Jack Smith. I, I mean, it was like the like for like was absolutely uncanny. I mean, that's kind of a masterpiece in saying yeah. one thing and doing the exact opposite of that exact case. Yeah. But, you know, whether this is like a, a deeply ingrained cultural trend or just kind of a clutch of opportunists, I guess. is, is Yeah, I mean, because I think there's so many strong examples of you know, people releasing in a low-key nature, but just doing it in a matter-of-fact way. Like, I think about some of the artists on Pestle Audio, for example. Like, they're not being marketers as anonymous producers. They just aren't releasing a press photo, and the label isn't giving you information about them. It's like... Yeah, and I think it's... um Basically, I think it's reasonable to not want uh, your own face to be part of um your identity as an artist you know to an extent like your art i don't know it's, it's like you you shouldn't be um obligated to involve yourself you know as as yourself really is and i don't know i, I guess i think it's fairly reasonable for for someone to just want their records to be there and um and and not b bring their self into the you know into the project i mean there's, yeah there's there's plenty to not like about sort of the music industry and how people have to engage with the music industry today. If you're a producer, you're also expected to be a, a, a DJ. If you're a DJ, you're also expected to be a producer. You know, you're, you're trying to build up a reputation so that you can make money and do all of this other stuff. And I think for there, there are people out there who, who legitimately just want to make music and they want to put it out there and maybe they want to sneak into the back of a nightclub and hear somebody playing it. And if, I think if those are your goals as an anonymous producer or as someone who's just not really marketing themselves as anybody in particular or not marketing themselves at all, then that's kind of a, a worthy goal. Now I'm just repeating what, what's already been said, but there are obviously cases where, where well, I people guess are... When it gets ironic is when you try to have it both ways. Is, mm -hmm. um, you, on the one hand, don't have press photos, your name's not out there, and you know, pitching everybody for interviews and sending out promos and you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's like it, it kind of has to be one or the other, I guess. I think also it depends on the way in which you are anonymous. I mean, to give an example, so, you know, dance music, like most parts of society, has certain kind of imbalances and so on, one of which is that the vast majority of producers and DJs in dance music are male. And 
there's been this kind of trend in the last few years for this kind of vogue for, for female names, for male producers, to, to some extent hiding behind female names. I mean, to go back to the PC Music thing, Sophie is a great example of this, where this is a man operating pretty much anonymously. You can find out his first name on the internet. But it wasn't clear for a long time that this was in fact a man and not a woman. And he uses like a female model as a kind of visual proxy. And I just think like, uh, you know, maybe he's trying to do something, say something interesting about marketing in the music industry, but the way it comes off often with these projects is just that the feminine is kind of like another costume in the dressing up box for men to kind of put on, you know, in, in like a male dominated scene, you know, the kind of message of this seems to be in this world, even being a woman is something that the men can do. So we don't need the women, you know, women are essentially sidelined in the conversation. Mm. So I think like the internet in particular gives you all these options and ways to play with your identity. But I think maybe people need to put a bit more thought into the ways in which they use that power. Do we feel as though there will increasingly be an insistence on identifying producers in the age we live in, like in a sort of instantly accessible, like internet information overload age? Do you think this will be something that people will be more frustrated about now than maybe they were 10 years ago? Well, I think now there's a feeling of being owed this information or like if you can't find basic bullet points about an artist as real name photos and stuff like that you feel like they're being precious or, or something like that. But um, that wasn't always the case. Or, you know, when I was growing up, the bands, the artists that I liked, um, like maybe um, you would happen upon like their real name or something, but they all sort of got to um, design these sort of uh, at least embellished identities, if not completely made up identities. And um, now when people do that, it'll always end up being more transparent because of you know, the ability we have to just um, look into this ourselves. And um, I mean, it's interesting to think, like, if you actually had no way of knowing, like, what, that Sophie was, in fact, a man or something. But anyway, I think that that sort of um, designing your own identity or just concealing your identity, um, that's always been a part of this whole thing. And um, the tools we have now kind of complicated all of it. And at the same time, too, I think people are getting more wary of privacy and, and, and how their identity appears online. And um I just read an article saying about how in many European countries you can request to have information about yourself removed from Google searches. And on an anecdotal level, I know that some people that have kept their identities kind of under wraps as a producer, it's the Google results is is, um, is part of it. Anyways, I think that the whole thing will sort of you know, continue mm. to get well, more complicated. Things like uh, visas and an entry to the US and tours and those sorts of things. Yeah, big time. Um, I mean, I know, um, but even like there's weird stuff that you would never think of, like why people won't want their last name for like a, a very personal family related reason, or they, they don't want their, <laughs> their mothers, you know, uh, finding them in an article where they talk about doing drugs or <laughs> something like that. Um, anyway, they, they're, they're, kind of myriad of fairly simple, reasonable reasons that you'd want to keep all that stuff private. I don't know, but I think there's a, there's a tendency to, to, to jump to this sort of um, cynical grab it mystique, which is, is often the case. But I think as time goes on, there'll be even, there'll be more and more cases of people doing it for quite, you know, simple, mundane reasons. I think with, in rock music, often this idea at least in the way rock music was covered, that this music is coming from a personality. You have like personality driven music. I mean, you know, this is like reading articles in, in Rolling Stone or whatever, you know, it's, it's always like, this is the artist at home. This is like what they do. This is, this is the person that this music that you like is, is coming out of. And that's sort of, sort of the, 
it's kind of sort of the connection that you're supposed to make with this music. In electronic music, you know, maybe that wasn't always supposed to be the case. The idea is, you know, you're not staring at the DJ booth. The personality is sort of diminished. But I wonder, you know, as electronic music sort of crosses over or, or is in sort of a period of crossover, especially in the United States, which has always had this kind of this idea that that music is this individual pursuit. You know, I, I wonder if anonymity will continue to to be this bait for for a particular kind of curiosity about an artist or a particular kind of way of covering an artist. I mean, it seems like no mistake that it's like The Sun, you know, a rather mainstream newspaper in the UK was obsessed with uncovering burial. Like they just couldn't leave it. You know, that, that seems like exactly the sort of place that will come from. And as artists become bigger and bigger, whether they're anonymous or not, or maybe especially if they're anonymous, they're, they're going to be subject to that kind of microscope. Yeah, yeah. actually, uh, w- one thing I really want to fit in, I think is the most interesting example of the whole thing, is um, Shed and his various, you know, sort of, not really, whatever, his, his different project names. Because in a way, he's, to me, is this sort of perfectly failed attempt at, at separating or uh, removing authorship from his music. Like when, when I interviewed him a few years ago, it was right when... Um, EQD and Wax was the word, you know, those were his other ones coming out. He didn't deny that he made them, but he was like, no, but the idea is that they're just there. Like they just exist. It's like, I don't want people to think this is like me trying out something different. It's just like, it's a record, it's music. Like, you know, people buy it, people like it. Whether it was trying to, you know, he kept coming up with these new names. I'm not sure if it was in a persisting attempt to to baffle, you know, the, his audience. But it, you can see when I was looking at reviews of his uh, the Head High double LP, it was interesting that you saw people saying like, you saw what, why he wanted to be separated from it because people would say things like, yeah, it's still kind of the same thing he's always done, and um, you know they were putting it within the narrative of of Shed's music and how it's developed over time, but he specifically wanted to take it out of that narrative because that narrative can be constricting. You know, maybe Shed in, in his own records will continue to develop and, and do interesting things, but with things like Head High, he just wants to make banging tracks. Yeah, and, and he, and he doesn't want to use a lot of music as well. Right. And, and the thing is, like, he succeeded. I mean, the, the, the track, like, DJs played those tracks. A lot of people had great moments with them. And in the end, it was only a distraction to, to say, like, oh, but how different is it from the last head? You know, that, that's exactly what he wanted to just remove from the equation, which I think is, is an understandable, you know, pursuit. Do you think as music critics, we're uh, maybe a little bit too quick to focus on issues of identity? I mean, do we fall into the trap? Perhaps in the sense that, I mean, so you, you read out that press release earlier. You know, we're kind of at the coalface of presentation in music. You know, we, we're we constantly observing in fine detail how people present themselves and how they're presented specifically to us. But, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure this is an issue that preoccupies anyone who's kind of following and buying this music because, you know, it's natural curiosity to want to know about the artist that, you're, that you are a fan of. Mm. I think as well, maybe we've been guilty ourselves of falling into this trap, kind of like Will was saying at the outset, that if there is no real name attached to the music, then an air of mystery is trying to be cultivated. Right. Or even like if you're just that there's no handy term that doesn't cast this air of, you know, mystery. Like, you know, if, if there was a drier way of saying anonymous, like I would, I would use it often, you know. It was sort of like when um, the difference between secret location and TBA location, you know, like 
secret kind of is a bit flattering. Like it's just like they, you know, they can't you release the answer. us yet. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's, it's 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 not like in a cave and you find it by like a trail of candles or you know that like it's no, secret sort of I don't know conjures up something special in a way that that isn't. And um, yeah, and to me it's like guys on uh, a Cheeto and sued. Like they're not trying to keep you guessing. This is you know th- there's no I don't know that that's just not part it's of it. It's just low key. Yeah. Right. So uh, last month, Andrew Rice interviewed Pinch, and at a certain point, he asked about the mix CD that Pinch had just released alongside Mum Dance. So Andrew asked, "Why did you do a mix to show off your work together rather than an album?" Pinch's response: "The most honest reason is that I found the album format in dance music is a bit of a self-contradictory thing, because ultimately a layover from rock and blues and the traditional aspect of the music industry." Dance music is about continuous music presented by DJs, so I think that the more honest document is in the mix format. The idea of just listening to a straight minimal techno album, where you might have eight, nine minute tunes with two minute intros and two minute outros from start to finish, it's not meant to be listened to like that. Angus, do you agree that club music and the album format have always had something of an uneasy relationship? Yeah, I mean, I would say that the overwhelming majority of dance music albums ever made shouldn't exist. I think that's definitely true. A bold uh, statement. Reviewing dance music albums, the majority of them don't work as albums, even if they work on other terms. And yes, it is an outmoded format. It's definitely a hangover from, you know, from the vinyl long player, essentially, how much music can you fit on a record and from an industry that's that's built around that format. So I think a lot of dance producers make albums mainly because the market demands it of them at a certain point to reach a certain audience to make use of certain distribution channels, you need to your music needs to be in the album form. But for all that, I, th- I am completely invested in the idea that dance music makes good albums. I mean, like off the top of my head, just from the recent, like the last couple of months, three albums that I thought were really interesting and specifically interesting because of what they did with the format. Um, those Koch, which is a Lee Gamble album, Objects album, Flatland, and Cool Super, Susie Ecto. You know, if these tracks were presented in a different form, I'd argue that maybe they wouldn't be anywhere near as interesting as they are. But then again, of course, all three of these artists play pretty fast and loose with the conventions of dance music. You know, there are none of these, as Pinch was saying, like two minute DJ usable intros and outros on those tracks. So maybe to make a successful dance album, you have to kind of step away from dance music to an extent. Will, do you personally see any value in lining up 10 techno records in a row and calling it an album? No, I think, yeah, I mean, obviously there are exceptions, but uh, I think generally it's very unflattering to the music. And um, I don't know, I also think this sort of rehashing some of what's been said, but it's often happens for the wrong reasons. For whatever reason, we've arrived at this point where in dance music, the album is the release that people kind of rally around. You know, various magazines want to do features or interviews in, in light of an album. Albums are, 
even in DJ culture, often what you tour on the back of. And um, the kind of strange thing is the actual music on the album itself often feels far less important than all of that. I have had label managers say to me point blank that the label asks its artists to do an album every two years because they have to. That's the way you keep yourself, I think, sort of near the top of the heap in terms of you know relevance and publicity and, and also it creates a reason to to have a string of gigs it makes sense to promoters if you can point to recent press and you know that there's buzz around this album blah 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 mm. but yeah as angus said there's certain types of producers where i think their style is flexible enough that they can roll with the album format pretty well and, and, and it can even present a really interesting creative opportunity for them um, they'll they'll make music that they wouldn't have put on an ep but um if you got an album of pretty straightforward house and techno just you know tracks coming one after the other i think it's rare that that will be truly compelling is there an argument that this is a value for djs this this type of presentation i don't know i mean you know in a lot of cases from a dj perspective it's nicer to have like a you know 12 inch or a maxi single where you have one track on the side like theoretically it sounds better and it's just easier to use um you know if, if you're trying to dj with something that has three records inside it you know three tracks on a side or something like that um, it's a pain in the ass and and also they are just more expensive usually than than, than 12 inch so well yeah often you, you might have an album that maybe it comes out in digital form or on CD and it has a bit of embellishment on it. But then when the vinyl comes out, it's sort of geared toward DJs. They maybe cut the down-tempo stuff or the skits. The, the records themselves are, are still cut like dance vinyl, maybe one track, two track per side, and uh, they're quite loud, so you can still play them in the club. Just playing off what you were saying earlier, Will, there, there are definitely some exceptions to this rule that just straight dance tunes sort of can't work as a full album. The two things that came to my mind were the Gislotten Circle album from this year, and then from late last year, the uh, Prince of Denmark album, The Body. And The Body is an interesting word to use for this. I mean, these are both albums that strike me as like bodies of work. Just getting a bunch of this guy's really good material all at one go. And there is a certain cohesiveness to the, the style that's on the record. At the same time, it's not necessarily great to listen to straight through, and you know, if that's kind of what an album is supposed to be about, maybe. Well, and even like with the Gislotten Circle thing, something I thought was funny was people got hung up on how the first two tracks are like, it's a zombie machine and then like a different mix of zombie machine that's shorter. But yeah, I thought like to me that was sort of an indication of like, this isn't necessarily a front to back like album listening experience. Like it's it's a, a compilation of, of new tracks, you know, which is more of a like, I guess fits the dance music structure more or something i mean what do we think the motivation is on behalf of these artists you know they're lining up 10 club tracks in a row but do you think they even want us to be listening to them in a block well yeah i guess with the and circle i think not necessarily that's you know i mean do you guys think for the moment that the idea of the album being like the ultimate artistic expression is just like way too ingrained in our culture to come away from it i think maybe it will change i mean i i think the problem with pinch and mum dances kind of solution to that is that the mix is also already an existent thing with its own rules and its own dynamic and it's approached in a certain way and what they did was a, a release with lots of original music on it 
but it was essentially jostling with the endless sort of free podcasts and mixes online for people's attention, you know, so it enters a different and arguably even more crowded kind of attention economy. So I think if there was going to be something that would supplant the album, it would need to be something different again. It's interesting that there could be a case to be made that a follow-up release for that would be required. I mean, they've presented it as kind of a home listening experience, but really DJs want to get their hands on these tracks, are going to need them in a different form. Sure, yeah. They're not going to lift it from the release. I mean, something I was thinking about before was the Gaucho Lustwerk last year, who essentially put out an album's worth of releases in a mixed format. Now, if that had been released for free, and then he had have followed up in the, in the months following with 12-inch releases, I think that could have been like a killer new method of doing this. But it did kind of feel like the trail went a little bit cold and people were left... For what it's worth, I think Gouch's hard drive died after he made the mix, so he wasn't in a position to release most of those tracks, I think. is Was that part of the plan then? Well, I don't know if that happened before or after he had... You know, I don't know what the plan was following that mix, but I imagine we would have seen a lot more of the tracks if he'd still had them. But I don't think That's actually something that over the years that I've really liked, like one of my favorite dance music long players is um, No Disco Future, Thomas Melchior. And um, that was like, came out as sort of like a half hour single track mix, I guess. I guess Zip mixed it. And um, and then it's also on vinyl with all, all the tracks separate. Is even something kind of going back to like the mix album distinction, but Villalobos's Fabric was essentially an album. And then a bunch of the key tracks came out on that um, Say Yes drum triple pack like you know, a few months later or whatever. But yeah, I mean, to me, that's quite a sort of natural, obvious way to, to deal with it. Like if, if you really want to put out like an album's worth of stuff, even if it's not turning into a DJ mix, but as Pinch said, like the nature of dance music is it's meant to be presented in this continuous flow. Um, mm. You know, j- just do something, you know, direct some of your creativity towards the sort of pacing and um, flow of the whole thing. And, you know, that might be all it takes. But yeah, also, as he said, when you're hearing um, intros and outros, um, there's just a feeling of like this, you know, this wasn't going through emotions. Jordan, would you, do you think at this moment in time you would take maybe 45 minutes of free music presented through the internet as a equally legitimate artistic statement as like a fully released album through a, through a big label? I mean, there's a lot of other stuff that goes into a release. Like there's the artwork as part of the presentation. There's, I don't know, the, the mastering on, on, the, on the record. There's maybe even like the, the artful promotional campaign that goes into this whole thing. I mean, these aren't strictly speaking part of the listening experience, but they are part of the experience of being a music fan. And um, I don't know, sometimes it's cool to have really sick artwork. Sometimes it's cool to go down to the shop and actually get the thing. I don't know if the music's really good. Maybe you could argue it doesn't matter how it's presented and that's all you really need. At the same time, if the music's really good, it could be even better if it comes in a sweet gatefold. I have no idea. I mean, do you feel as though an artist's career would be kind of like noticeably impaired if they never did release an album? I don't think so. I mean, there are some artists I really like who kind of just release singles. If they release an album, it happens years and years and years later. It depends on the artist, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking about it, um, going off Jordan's thing about the sweet gatefold. Over the weekend, I listened to um, The Wall by Pink Floyd. And I was thinking like how 
that album is like it's probably somewhere near the height of like the album as an art form but like it's basically watching a movie or something like you know it's like if you think about the way people consume music when it came out where it's like you're listening to it in your bedroom you know it kind of has your undivided attention most of the time you're not like doing a million other things on fucking Facebook or whatever. And you're probably just plopped in a beanbag chair, you know, probably stoned, just, you know, sitting there, it's like, you know, all right, lay it on me. But that's just not the way people consume music anymore. And actually in an interview a couple of years ago, John Beltran said that like his favorite kind of music experience is buying an album, going home, putting it on, laying on the couch and just looking at the sleeve the whole time you listen to it. Again, that's just like, I'm sure some people still do that, but most of us, it's like we're listening to it on our computer while we, browse the internet and um, that's sort of like plop yourself down receive this sort of feature presentation um, that's just kind of you know for better or worse it's not there anymore and that's sort of the that's what made albums so great at one point was that that's that's how people listen to them and part of what makes dance music so great when you're hearing it in a club or something is that it is it's commanding your full attention but in a, in a very different way right. I mean if you're in a loud club you can't really do much else you can't think about much else it's all about the music getting that in another way sometimes feels like a lesser experience. Yeah. But one thing I would say is where albums are still great is just like, like reliably, whether good or bad, it's like, this is how you're meant to hear it is um, with ambient music, like the Neil album, um, the upcoming Neil album, I think has like a similar sort of visual transporting quality to, you know, like something like old, you know, seventies LPs or um, anyway, like it's, it can still work in certain types of electronic music. I, I think it's specifically like the, dance element where it can it can get a little awkward yeah. angus do you see kind of commonalities between the dance albums quote unquote that kind of do work like what what are some of the requirements in your mind i think i mean kind of as i said earlier i think generally they're successful when danceful functionality ceases to be the absolute paramount concern and something else takes over because you know you just Otherwise, you just constantly have this sense that you are listening to this music in the wrong context. You know, it's playing to you now, but it's gesturing at another context and another time and another place. Mm. And I think because of the kind of bleed between dance music and various kinds of non-dance floor experimental music in the last few years, that's been quite fertile ground because these are artists who, for whom dance floor functionality isn't necessarily the primary concern anyway. So I think those kind of albums are what have been really doing it for me recently. Yeah, I guess I really don't like this term actually, but that's what people mean when they say um, like home listening or good for home listening is that the way you said it, how dance music, you're listening to it wherever you are, but it's inviting you to imagine a club scenario. I guess home listening is like, it doesn't suggest that other that other situation. Um, you know, it'll, it'll work with whatever you happen to have going on while, while you're hearing it. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, there have been, um, I think some of the successful transitions. You mentioned Cool Super. I was thinking also about like Answer Code Request, Marcel Fengler, surprisingly as well. I think you always end up seeing something in their music that you can imagine would extend to another kind of context, if you like. Producers who are particularly focused on sound design, where rhythm becomes less of a concern. But, you know, there's something that will kind of easily lend itself to a, a shift in tempo, for example. I mean, Jordan, are there particular qualities you think like make a strong dance album? I mean, I think it's variety for one thing. If it's 10 seven minute tracks that are all more or less indistinguishable from what you would find on the A side of an EP, it's gonna just get a little bit boring. But I also think that 
something that's very important is cohesiveness. And um, that is maybe what you can get a bit more creative with. It's creating a bit of a, a bit of a musical world where these tracks all kind of work together in, in an aesthetic sense. It doesn't necessarily have to be style. It could be something about the, the way the sounds work. I mean, you mentioned the Answer Code Request album and the, the Marcel Fengler album. I mean, these are two very, very skilled techno DJs who make very, very good techno 12 inches. It wasn't like they threw in like the weird kind of down-tempo hip-hop track or something. They just added something that seemed a little bit different than just straight techno into the music. I think with both of those, it was the melodies that really were kind of the distinguishing factor. But yeah, I think if you can create something that's that's diverse, but also cohesive, you kind of have a good album. And that extends beyond dance music albums. I mean, that's just albums in general, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you think there's been a something of a gap in a way that lots of occasions these producers just simply aren't considering considering the listener? Yeah, maybe not realistically imagining, you know, how the listener will take in this music or something. Uh, I mean, as, as well, do we feel like sites like RA are maybe guilty of perpetuating this model? I mean, for me personally, I'm commissioning features based on when someone has a record comes out, an album, sorry. Uh, it feels natural that there's like a amount of momentum behind them. But do you think that all we're really doing or our role in this is kind of fueling this idea that the album is the like ultimate noteworthy statement? Maybe, but I think... Equally, there are examples of artists whose the press's kind of relationship with them and their career hasn't been harmed by the fact that they haven't done an album. I mean, you know, the Hessel guys would be a great example of artists who, you know, the two producing Hessel guys, Pearson Sound and Pangier, who haven't gone near doing an album. I mean, they've done like extended EPs, but that certainly doesn't seem to have harmed their kind of profile and the way the press relates to them. And they're very well liked generally, it seems. So I think, you know, as long as there's not a sense that producers have to jump through this hoop for sites like RA to take them seriously. I think it's not too much of a problem. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that David Kennedy said in the past that he simply doesn't think his music suits an album format. I very much respect him for saying so, but then if you consider what kind of falls within his range these days and the range of music that he produced, you could make a very strong case for him presenting something in the full-length format. <laughs> oh, this is sort of a random thought, but I was going to say, like, it's interesting to me that this is not like an isolated phenomenon. Like, it's just like how in order to be a DJ, you have to be a producer. Yeah. Like, you know, you're expected to do something that's not your area of expertise in order to be taken seriously. And I've heard also comedians feel pressure to learn how to act. And um, there are things across the board where um, this is just something about the relationship between the creative person and the audience is, is there's cases where they'll just be obligated to do something where there was no reason to think they would be good at this. Like you like them for something else. And, you know, now you're expecting this of them. It's you know, it's just strange. So if we were to just start this whole thing again, is there a sort of alternate means of presentation that would be like more suited to this style of music? I mean, again, it comes down to this thing of context. So if you're trying to sell something to people that works satisfyingly at home, but you don't, what you want to make is dance music that specifically is intended to work in a club. There's just a, a kind of a disjunct there that I don't see any way of solving that really. You know, there's always going to be some compromise between those two contexts, basically. I think it's an artist by artist thing. Like there are some artists who like that, you know, as we said already, um, the album might be slightly different from what they normally do, but it suits them. I think when you're talking about artists who, uh, 
they're pretty much only going to make club tailored tracks. I mean, I guess the easiest thing would just be like with pinch mum dance it with the mix, but generally speaking, that was just like, maybe you just shouldn't make it. And I feel like if sort of the structure of the industry sort of twists your arm and in, in, into releasing something that just isn't that great. Um, I don't know. It's kind of, it's kind of a shame. I mean, one example that comes to mind for me for something that's a little bit of an alternative way of doing things, the knife last year, I guess, released an album, but the album was sort of like an aside to this stage show that they set up. I mean, I, I thought it was, a, I thought shaking the habitual was a fantastic album, but as it turns out, it was really just, there was a show that all this music was sort of meant to go along with in a way, or at least that the show was such a spectacle that you could, you could kind of look at it that way. You know, maybe for, for some artists, they, they just feel like the idea of sitting at home, listening to music, that's not really much of an experience. But if you can come up with something that will be a much more total experience, people have to leave their house to go and check it out. Like that's quote unquote the album. Maybe that's an alternate thing. Do we think that from the perspective of an artist, if you haven't released an album, then really you haven't achieved everything you possibly can do? Like, is that is that still like an inbuilt thought process within a within an artist? It's nice to have something you can send to your mother and she might understand an album. You know, if your mom's cool with it, maybe you really are an artist. I don't know. <laughs> Tracks with them, double your 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 tracks
tracks we've never... 